The psalmist would write for us in Psalms chapter 30 and verse 5. For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. My, my, what a gem of a text that is. That passage of Scripture is like a precious jewel, a diamond or a ruby in a rare gold or platinum setting. Or you might even say that that passage of Scripture is is like an oasis in the desert. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And you know the tragedy is, quite honestly, there are a lot of folks that don't believe that. There are a lot of folks that believe that that is beautiful Hebrew poetry, but it's nothing else. Because... There are a lot of folks that have found life to be especially hard. And they found life to be especially harsh. And there are people that will just indignantly turn away from that passage. And they'll shout from the highest hills and they'll shout from the housetop, that passage simply is not true. And they will insist that the tragic experiences of their own life testify to the falsity of that passage. But folks, what that passage does, that passage declares for us a faith that is worth possessing. When I hear of folks that say, well, that passage just can't be true. There's just no way that that passage is true, that weeping endures for the night and joy comes in the morning. It reminds me of someone that I read of once that saw a painting of a very beautiful sunset. A woman in a gallery saw this painting of the sunset and she spoke to the artist. And she told the artist flatly, she said, I have never seen a sunset as beautiful as your painting. And his painting was beautiful. And his painting was exquisite. And she said, I've just never seen a sunset like that. And he looked at her and he smiled. And he said, but don't you wish that you could? Now, there may be folks that do not share the faith of the psalmist in this passage. And maybe you are one of those this morning that cannot share the faith of the psalmist. But if you can't, don't you wish that you could? We must ask the question, what is the faith of this writer? This writer is daring to tell us that in our world of change and decay, in this world where our hearts are so often broken, in this world where our faces are so often wet with tears, joy is a more abiding guest than sorrow. Now, I want you to notice something carefully in the passage. 
He does not promise us that we will be exempt from sorrow. There is no claim in the passage that the ideal world has somehow been discovered. Quite frankly, he tells us that weeping may come as a very unwelcome guest in our life. But he reminds us that this unwelcome guest weeping is not permanent. Tears may come, but they are passing. Now, when you think about it, that's the opposite of the way we usually speak. You know, we talk about people being optimist or pessimist, and, you know, there, there's the pessimist that the glass is filled to the midpoint with water, and they say, well, the glass is half empty. Or there's the optimist that sees the glass filled to the midpoint with water and said, well, the glass is half full. And then there's people like me, I'm kind of the super optimist. I see a glass half filled with water and it's a glass full. It's half full of water and half full of air, but that glass is full, folks. Well, now there may be some that, that think that, you know, that this is something that can't happen. And when you think about it, when he says weeping comes for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and weeping comes as an unwelcome guest, that tears come and they may be passing. We generally look at things the opposite of that. Don't we as humans generally remind ourselves of the temporary nature of our joy in life? How often do we look at children playing with a mingling of envy and pity and tell them you enjoy it because you're going to be grown soon enough and you're going to have to face life then? And we're even envious <coughs> that we're not as innocent and carefree as they are. Well, how? How did the writer come to this conclusion? What brought the psalmist to the conclusion that it's sorrow and not joy that's fleeting? It's not a faith that comes from a refusal to believe the sordid facts of life. He does not believe that weeping is going to only endure for the night because he has closed his eyes to the source of our tears. He does not deny the reality of sin. He does not deny the reality of pain. And we do not find him denying the final calamity that we call death. But he faces all the terrifying foes that encompass us in this world. And he clings to this optimistic faith that joy comes in the morning. Now this is not the optimistic faith of someone who has had everything come up roses for him in life. You know, there's something that's Absolutely provoking, irritating even, in the preaching of someone that you know has never put the efficacy of his preaching to the test in the battle of life. 
We like to feel that when we're listening to someone preach, that we're listening to someone that life has beaten up just a little bit somewhere along the way. And I can assure you, I've been beaten up a little bit along the way. Someone that's not just preaching theory. Someone that's had some battles in life. That, folks, is the glory of the Psalms. Because you see, the writer of the Psalms is speaking out of his own life's experiences. When you read the Psalms, realize something. They were lived before they were written. When he tells us that weeping may endure for the night, but that joy comes in the morning. He's telling us a truth. And it is a truth that he has come to by the painful path of his own life's experiences. It's something he has hammered out on the conviction of the anvil of his own soul. He even goes so far, <coughs> my apologies, some things can't be helped. He even goes so far as to trace for us the road along which he traveled to this kind of faith. You read the whole 30th Psalm. For years, Life has dealt kindly and gently with him. The hearse drew up in front of other houses, but not in front of his. He knew that suffering and tears were a part of the human lot, but he did not realize it. Reports of tragedies taking place in the life of others seem somehow strangely remote to him. He tried. He tried in some way to have sympathy with others, but he couldn't. Their stories of pain and their stories of sorrow seemed to come to him from a distant world. His joy and his prosperity had continued so long that it had all but intoxicated him. He once complacently said in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. But before he could realize what had happened, life for him had toppled into ruins. What had happened? He who had gone for years without an acre of pain found himself in the prey of some disease. The death sentence has been passed and he must suffer and there is no remedy but death. And in his bewilderment, he lost his faith. With spiritual and physical health gone, a strange, unwelcome guest came to his home. The guest was weeping. He was not welcome, but he still came. And the nights were long, and the nights were filled with agony. And when all hope seemed lost, he decided to make one last effort. Maybe, just maybe, the God that seemed to have forsaken him would help him even yet. 
and in his weakness. He threw himself into the everlasting arms. And guess what? God did not fail him. And he said, he's turned my mourning into dancing. And he assures me, and he assures you, that what God has done for him, God's going to do for us. And he says, weeping may endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. This kind of faith is a valuable kind of faith that keeps our hope alive. And with hope kept alive, then we can carry on with patient courage. You know, honestly, it's hard to see things through with honor when hope is gone. Some folks manage it. But it's a difficult proposition. And while there are some that can carry on when hope is gone, there are a lot of folks that can't. I'll never forget some years ago, I was called upon to conduct a funeral. It was for the daughter of some friends of mine. They were friends that were well up in years when they asked me to do their daughter's funeral. I actually ran into the daughter's brother this past week. We had a nice visit. But I was even up in years when this happened. This this couple, they ran a small corner grocery store when I was a kid. I used to ride my bicycle up to their store to get a cold drink and a candy bar and sit on a stool and visit with them. They were good people. Honest people. People you'd call the salt of the earth. And they called me and said, can you do a funeral service for our daughter? Their daughter had taken their car, had driven to a deserted place, and taken her life. And I looked into her face in that casket. And I saw a very pathetic face. A face that appeared to have been void of hope. And I wondered, as I had seen her in the store through the years as I was growing up, and I talked to them and I talked to her brothers, why did she fling her life away that, like that? It was because she lost hope. Her today was filled with trouble, anxiety, and perplexity. And as she looked toward the future, all she could see was a troop of tomorrows. 
that for her were as hopeless as her today was. She lost her heart. She lost her hope. And she gave up the fight. We must remember the words of the psalmist. Our night of weeping might be long, and our night of weeping might sometimes be lonely, but we must not give up. And we must not lose hope. For we are promised that joy comes in the morning. That kind of faith is going to be light to us in the night of weeping. That kind of faith takes away the bitterest sting of sorrow. Oftentimes, our sorrow is so bitter. And what makes our sorrow so bitter? I think it's the attitude, our attitude of its finality. That it can't be remedied. So often, our attitude towards sorrow is that of Poe's raven, nevermore. The blow falls, and we look upon the ruins, and we sob. Our attitude would be totally different if we truly believe that weeping is temporary. And joy comes in the morning. I think it's, the illustration's somewhat imperfect, but it's somewhat like the way things have been around our house the last few years with the boys grown and gone and married. Sometimes the house seems awfully big. And sometimes it seems desperately lonely. I would sometimes actually like to, to get up in the morning and go in the kitchen to make my coffee and see a coat hanger hanging there. You know, the, the metal coat hangers that have the paper in there to protect your clothes. I would love to go in there some morning and see the coat hanger hanging in front of the coffee pot on the cabinet. Dad, dry my clothes, please. Dad, I have a test at 8.30. Make sure I'm up by 7.30. Or whatever it was that Matt wanted to communicate with me, he knew that if he wrote it on a coat hanger and hung that coat hanger on the cabinet in front of the coffee pot, that that was the very first thing I'd see the next morning. Well, I'd like to sometimes go in there and see one of those coat hangers hanging over that. I was talking to him the other night. He said, well, I've got to get really busy. He said, it's been spring break and my wife's been gone all week and she's coming home tomorrow, so I've got to start washing dishes and clean the house up. I said, why don't you just do like you did when you lived at home? Just keep piling them in the sink till somebody else washes them. He said, that might not work so well now. I said, yeah, that's what I figured. But the house can sometimes seem... Quite lonely with both the boys gone. And, and with that, 
we'll get a phone call or we'll get a text message that Matt and Ryan are planning to come in or Bright and Abby are going to come in or Bright and Abby want to meet us somewhere. And all of a sudden, Norma's whole attitude changes. No, it doesn't, Joyce. The loneliness is gone. The house is still just as empty as it was. But the loneliness is gone. Because we have expectations that the house is going to be filled again. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, every one of you. That's what the psalmist is saying here. When we pass through a long night of weeping, we know that a guest is coming. He's on his way. He's going to unlock the door. He's going to come marching in. Joy is coming in the morning. And when truly, deep down inside, we have that faith, we know it's going to be okay. But now, the question is, is that kind of faith Possible? Is it possible in our day and in our time? This psalmist has been suffering from some deadly disease. We don't know what. He has been so close to the gates of death that he's almost been reckoned among the dead. And his desperate, in his desperate condition, he's cried to God and God has heard him and God has healed him. Well, does that mean we can believe that God's going to always heal the sick and God's going to always heal the suffering that cry unto Him? No, we can't. There are those that pray just as earnestly as He did. And in spite of all their prayers and the prayers of those that love them, they still pass from this life. And others go on suffering. For long, torturing years. Paul was one of those. He pleaded earnestly for his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, to be removed. And God said, my grace is sufficient. And his request was not granted. And yet, while God does not always see fit to give physical healing in answer to our prayers. God does something far better than that. God gives to that man or that woman who prays, who really prays, an inner strength. A calm courage that enables them to bear the load that's laid on them. No matter what that load is and no matter how heavy that load might be. God gives, in answer to prayer, a quiet heart, an abiding peace, and a fullness of life that makes mere physical healing seem small and trifling. Over the years, 
I've seen folks with the most vigorous of bodies who are weak and sickly in their souls. Often, bodily weakness drives us to Jesus and becomes a source of spiritual strength. And we learn with Paul, God's grace is sufficient. You see, for me, for us, this text has for us a richness of meaning that the psalmist who wrote it was a stranger to. Because since he wrote those words, Jesus has come. And Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And so if Jesus Christ is the Lord and Master of our life, with Jesus as the Lord and Master of our lives, weeping may endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. So, if Jesus is not Lord and Master of your life this morning, you need to make Him Lord and Master. Whether it's by confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism, or saying, I've sinned, and having brothers and sisters pray with you and for you. Whatever the need is. If you need to make changes for Jesus to be Lord and Master of your life, to be able to say, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now's the time to do it as we stand and while we sing.